0: Coming up on this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary.
1: But the real problem in amongst Bible-believing people and, and sincere Christians, such as my friend, the real problem is that um, they've been told, they've come to the conclusion, that when the Bible speaks to social issues, that um, those issues are culturally determined, so that in Paul's day— or in Moses' day, these things were wrong. But in our day, in our culture, we know you know, all the, quote, science with respect to homosexuality or the um, egalitarianism in the culture, uh, this no longer applies. These, these laws no longer apply.
0: good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, and I'm really going to sort of stop saying that because I think after 27 episodes, most of you out there listening to this know by now that I am the host of the program. But if you're not sure, well, now you know. My name is William Hill, and I do host this program each week. If you do want to find out more information about this podcast, you can do so at ConfessingOurHope.com. There you can find out all information about upcoming broadcasts, broadcasts we've had done in the past, as well as information for our mobile app and other types of information. The website is simply ConfessingOurHope.com. If you would like to find out more information about Greenville Seminary, you can always do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, through the internet at gpts.edu. And I do want to mention real quick, as I have the opportunity to do that, uh, we are beginning a lead-up or a build-up to our Spring Theology Conference. Now you may be thinking, okay, Spring Theology Conference is, uh, well, that's a long way away. Well, yes, it is. um, But I want to begin to alert our listeners to the reality of what we're going to be doing Um, At our conference in the spring, who some of the guests are going to be and let you also know that we will be having some of those guests, some of those speakers on as guests on the program to talk uh, uh, with them about their topics that they'll be speaking at at the conference. So just a little heads up as to what's coming up on the program in the days ahead. Um, But it's going to be an exciting conference. I don't want to say any more right now, but I can assure you it's not a conference. It's not a conference you want to miss Uh, given our climate and our world today. Now, today I do have the pleasure of welcoming the president of Greenville Seminary into studio, as it were, to talk about a subject that is um, very relevant, a subject that the Church needs to address more and more, needs to talk about more and more, and not be afraid to talk about it. Um, There's really no reason to, but this is an issue that we continually find ourselves bumping up against and so we're going to be talking with Dr. Joseph Piper, who, as I said, is the president of Greenville Seminary, about a subject um, that um, I think we need to seriously consider. Uh, basically, we're going to be discussing uh, the timeless nature of the Bible's social mandates, and exactly what that means. Uh, we're going to let Dr. Piper tell us here in just a minute. Um, as I said, Dr. Piper is the president of, the, of Greenville Seminary, a graduate of Westminster Seminary, in Philadelphia. So Dr. Piper, it's been a while since I've had you on, and so I'm glad to have you back and talk about this subject. We've talked about it uh, around the halls of the campus from time to time, and we sort of knew we were going to head in this direction for this broadcast, but what do we mean when we're talking about timeless, the timeless nature of the Bible's social mandates? What is that all about?
1: Well, Bill, it's good to be back on the program with you. The uh, the idea for the podcast came out of a conversation I had with a friend at the YMCA working out one morning back when the uh, local large PCSA church was voting on whether to leave the uh, mainline denomination, <clears throat> He said that they had a couple of choices, but they'd probably go with the, the new group called ECHO. And <clears throat> as probably most of our hearers know, they're leaving over the... Uh, recent stands that the PCSA has taken on homosexuality and homosexual ministers and things like that. Being a gadfly, I asked him the question, well, how is the Bible's statement about homosexuality different from the Bible's statements about women in office? Because this church, it's, a, it's an evangelical church, but they have, mm-hmm. have women in office. And he says, well, the women in office is a cultural thing. And that's why today in this culture we don't need to follow those things. What I wanted him to understand was that's exactly the criticism or the attack that pro-homosexuals are using in the church as well, that that was a cultural thing. And homosexuality, uh, when the Bible condemns it, it's talking about promiscuous homosexuality, not lifelong partnerships. Is that like a cultural thing as as if it's— Something that was
0: for then, but it doesn't really apply now, that was something that was their issue, but it's not our issue?
1: Right. And we're more enlightened today, they would say, we know that homosexuality, according to them, is uh, a matter of science and genes, uh, um, and so, obviously, it'd be wrong to hinder these people Mm -hmm. in those relationships. And so, my burden for this program is for people to realize that, uh, in the first place, the, the Biblical basis, what we would call the hermeneutic, the science of how we approach the Bible, is the same for both issues. And so I'd like us to consider what the Bible says about both issues and why uh, not only is homosexuality a sin today in the church, but women's ordination is as well. Certainly the Bible speaks
0: a lot to both of these subjects. And, I, and if I had to lay the scriptures down and try to give some sort of a percentage of how much ink is spent uh, one against the other, that is, uh, how much ink is spent on the subject of sexual uh, concerns or issues over against women being ordained, I, I guess I would say that scripture probably speaks more to the sexual issues and whatnot. Um, but what is the biblical perspective? Let's just start with the, um, the issue of homosexuality. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a hot issue. Uh, not only in the church, but in the world as well. Um, It it is always striking to me where such a small percentage of people control so much attention in our culture. But how does the Bible address this subject? Um, And and maybe we'll go from there and we'll talk about some of the objections to these things that are said. And, and, And of course, and we talked off air about certain assumptions that we're making that people listen to this podcast probably, we hope, assume that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, um, and it it speaks authoritatively to everything it speaks to. Um, And so, we should go to Scripture as our authority on these subjects, and so Dr. Piper, maybe take us through a survey, as it were. What is the Bible's position on homosexuality?
1: All right. Let's uh, start back with it's probably the first passage in Scripture to uh, mention the issue, and that is in Leviticus chapter 18, where God through Moses has given a series of commandments with respect to sexual morality. And interestingly, we would, I mean, even the more broad in the culture would say that a lot of these would still be relevant today with respect to incest and And such as that. But in the list, he mentions in verse 22, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Now he goes on to say, Also you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. And then two chapters later in chapter 20, of Leviticus. <clears throat> this uh, law again is a, a prohibition, is uh, reiterated um, with respect to uh, men lying with men. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 23, it's, it's picked up uh, again. So in the what we call the Mosaic Law, We've got this foundation that declares that homosexuality is in the same category as other sexual perversions, incest, a father with his daughter, or um, or the daughter of his wife, um, the uh, mating with an animal, or uh, men lying with men. So we come over to the New Testament and in Romans chapter 1. As the Apostle Paul is discussing the consequences of deliberately refusing to give honor to God and worshiping idols in the place of the true God, he says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who's blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty, of their era. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> Paul, in uh, some of his list, where he details those practices that uh, are contrary to the Christian faith, mentions homosexuality. The most explicit is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he gives the warning, generally first, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, do not be deceived neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate—and that's effeminate by perversion—the, quote, female part of the homosexual relationship—nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when Paul writes this way, he's not saying that those who have practiced these things and repented of them cannot be saved. He goes on to say uh, some of the most wonderful words in the Bible in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So he's not saying that a person who has um, committed these sins and repented can't be saved, but the person who persists in living in any of these sinful lifestyles. Now, one of the problems in our culture, and even in the church to some degree, is that for so long we condemned homosexuality and we winked at fornication, adultery, <clears throat> promiscuous divorce. Now, all those sins are as heinous in God's sight as is homosexuality. And so we have to be uh, even-handed. But today, because there's such a push for the homosexual. Lifestyle and acceptance and making it a matter of civil rights, that we do have to uh, emphasize that according to the Bible, homosexuality is not uh, caused by uh, – it's not natural. It is a perversion of nature. That's not saying that some people would not have a, a proclivity, a, a leaning in, in that direction, but – they may not give in to their lust. Mm -hmm. In the same way, I, as a heterosexual, have uh, sexual leanings uh, to lust and uh, adultery or or fornication if I weren't married, and I I can't say, well, that's my nature, and I I do it. I have to Mm. uh, submit to Scripture and seek the grace of God. And so if there are people that either because of practice or because they've got some proclivities it really doesn't matter. There are sinful proclivities, as is lust for another woman on a part of a man, and they have to be uh, put under the control of Christ and put to death.
0: There seems to be, uh, whenever we talk about this subject, I can hear people listening, and um, one of the first reactions, typically when, when Old Testament passages are read, is, well, that's the Old Testament, that doesn't, you know, we live in the New Testament era now, and Jesus taught about love. I mean, it seems like the culture regularly wants to run to this idea, this notion of love, as though it means we should accept everything. How do you respond to—well, let me put it this way. How would Christ have responded if he ever had addressed this specific issue? I mean, we know he addressed other sexual issues, and I think by extension he probably addressed this— But they'll often say, well, he never really mentions the issue of homosexuality.
1: Well, there are are two two big problems immediately come to mind in the question. The first is dividing the Bible. Now, yes, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, but it's one book. It's a seamless whole. There are things in the Old Testament that are preparatory for Christ and um, are fulfilled, But there's not two different gods. Mm -hmm. God's unchangeable. And Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so whatever is revealed about God in the Old Testament is true about God now. And whatever is revealed um, about God's will, morally, is as true now as it was uh, at that point. Um, A second... Uh, misconception is this whole matter of love. And we have to realize that uh, love is not license. In Galatians chapter 5, after Paul has defended the freedom of the gospel, he goes on to address this issue of uh, liberty and abuse of liberty. And so, for example, he says in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul here is quoting Leviticus uh, about the fulfillment of the law, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Paul is showing here is that uh, love obeys law, and law is motivated by love. The law of God is the regulator of the expressions of love and of our freedom. And in this uh, context, Paul goes on again to address uh, the matter of uh, sexual uh, sins in the church. He doesn't, in this case, mention homosexuality explicitly, but immorality, impurity, sensuality are what he calls the deeds of the flesh. Now really, the other problem I meant to uh, point out and and skipped over when I said there's two main problems, the other main problem is this failure to understand that uh, Christ is the author of all of Scripture. It mm, mm. doesn't matter what he said explicitly. You know, we get this crazy idea because of, of red-letter <laughs> Bibles. But uh, the apostles wrote through the inspiration of Christ by the Holy Spirit, and thus everything. And, and, for example, Peter tells us that Christ spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament by his Spirit. So anything you read in the Bible is Christ's will. And again, because he's unchangeable, his will has not changed. Uh, what he said in Leviticus 18 That's the same as what he has Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6 or in Romans 1. It's all the mind of Christ, and the law of God is how we're going to regulate love. One of the things that the people that would
0: oppose what you're advocating, and certainly what I hold to, uh, the scriptural position on this subject would say, is that you spend a lot of time uh, banging away, harping on the sins of homosexuality. Uh, and though other sins that have happened, especially in the church, seem to get ignored. And you hinted at this a little bit, I think, earlier. Why is it—and I think there's some truth to that. I think in the church we, we tend to—
1: I didn't just hint, I said that.
0: Yeah, I, and I think generally speaking—I'm not speaking about every church in America. I think just generally speaking, I think the reality is, is that these are easy targets, as it were. Um, but there's, I think there's a fundamental reason why. Uh, why is it that homosexuality, and as, as far as it invades into the church life, which we see it happening more and more now, why is that such a serious problem?
1: Well, I'm not sure I know exactly what you're asking, but let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. The whole purpose of marriage, marriage was an, an ordinance instituted by God before the fall, mm-hmm. and God clearly instituted marriage between man and woman. One man, one woman, permanent relationship for the purpose, not the only purpose, but a great purpose to have children. And thus what we call this creation ordinance is foundational to all uh, proper, um, blessed ordering of culture and society. Mm -hmm. And so we can look historically, every society that has violated the law of marriage, as is happening now in, in the United States, um, it w- was ruined. Now, part—it's also a slippery slope that uh, fornication and its acceptance was first, and that came at us packaged through the media, uh, and Christians would laugh at it and be entertained by uh, fornication, and then— Adultery. I remember one time uh, there was a movie, uh, well, it was based on the famous book, uh, Dr. Shivago. Mm-hmm. And of course, the theme of the movie is an adulterous, uh, a beautiful love story built around an adulterous relationship. And there's a song in that movie, Laura's Song. And I had a young lady in my church that I was pastoring at the time in the 1970s, and she wanted to get married. And she wanted to use that song at her wedding. And I said, You really want to use an adulterous love song to begin your marriage. But the church then just kind of got lulled into that, and then pretty soon the church was accepting no-fault divorce, and there was no church discipline in these issues. Uh, Homosexuality doesn't happen overnight. It happens as God gives a culture and gives the church Mm -hmm. over to, the fruit of its um, deliberate rebellion. So we break the marriage covenant if we are promiscuous. We violate God's purposes for marriage by enjoying sex outside of marriage, uh, recreational sex. And God wants us to enjoy that relationship, and he gave us marriage as a place to enjoy, but sex is not like going bowling, You know, it's it's you don't meet somebody at the bar and go to bed. That's that's the common theme. It's in movies and everywhere else, you know, and um, and, and so it's grown. But the great attack today uh, on on the family is homosexuality because it is not just a sexual perversion. It's a perversion of the created order of what a family is supposed to be. I, I, I assume that's what you're asking. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Because I, I, I think what ends up happening is and, and I think. And I think these groups that would advocate homosexuality have a certain, without giving them anything, but I think the reality is, I think they have a point when they accuse us, conservative evangelical Christians, Reformed Christians, of targeting that particular sin to the exclusion of other sins. Now, that's their their perception. Uh, You and I both know that that's not the case. But it appears that way, and I think part and parcel is because of its destructive nature that it fundamentally holds on all aspects of our lives. Their life as well as ours. I mean, it destroys the marriage, it destroys the family relationships, it destroys um, familial relationships outside of those intimate relationships between each other, mom and dads, (coughs) and so forth. Paul actually
1: says that they um, reap in their own persons the penalty of their error. Mm -hmm. And, you know... The church has been afraid to say it for a long time, but I believe AIDS is a temporal judgment on promiscu- promiscuity in general, but homosexuality in, uh, in particular. But there's also a lifestyle affected with this. Uh, it was amazing that Time Magazine would say such a thing, but back uh, during the, one of the British spy scandals, and they pointed out that um, these spies were homosexuals, and they actually wrote that uh, homosexuals have a desire to destroy the culture. Mm-hmm. Back to uh, we're experiencing today. Uh, evidently, uh, Lord Keynes, economist, was a homosexual mm-hmm. and deliberately designed an economic system that gives the appearance of bankruptcy of prosperity while it bankrupts. And that, I mean, in the day of political correctness, we can't uh, talk about these things in in many venues. But there is a, a destructiveness against. All that's normal in culture and a desire for hegemony and priority and preeminence. And so it's a very destructive lifestyle, not just to the family, but to truth, veracity, uh, because it's a, it's living a lie. What's the threat
0: as far as this subject is concerned? And, and, and I'll move us back into um, the hermeneutical issue as it relates to. And we've seen this. Now, I mean, thankfully, we're not seeing it in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, at least not yet. And I say that because I realize that it doesn't take long for air to take root and start to move. And, um, but in the church in general, um, we are seeing a movement. Uh, I think it's past just a movement. I think we're seeing it done pretty much part and parcel now in certain denominations of ordaining women, and homosexuals to the office of minister, elder. Um, is it a result of our society's position? And, and how is the church, why would they, first, why would they do that when they know the Bible, as you just ex- explained for us so clearly, speaks vehemently against it?
1: Right. Well, this is why I, we gave that title um, about the Bible and, and uh, social issues. I think that a a fair survey of churches that first moved to ordain women elders and deacons and then women pastors, uh, there is a a charitable progression to then accepting and finally ordaining homosexuals. And the reason is that the hermeneutic Mm -hmm. by which one accepts women's ordination uh, then takes over uh, in the area of homosexuality. In women's ordination, we get a, a couple of approaches. One is those that deny the authority of the Bible. That's a little easier for people to sure to deal with. But we have those that that would say, "I accept the Bible's authority." Uh, well, uh, let's take the middle party. There are those that say, "Well, yeah, that's there's errors in the Bible. I accept the Bible's authority, but there's errors there." And this was Paul's. Uh, Opinion, but the real problem in amongst Bible-believing people and, and sincere Christians, such as my friend, the real problem is that um, they've been told they've come to the conclusion that when the Bible speaks to social issues, that um, those issues are culturally determined. So that in Paul's day or in Moses' day, these things were wrong. But in our day, in our culture, we know, you know, all the quote science with respect to homosexuality or the um, egalitarianism in the culture. Uh, uh, this no longer applies. These these laws no longer apply. God doesn't intend for them to apply. And, and actually, goes back to um, Bishop Hooker and his ecclesiastical polity where those that uh, believed in an Anglican form of government said, well, this is just how the church may govern itself according to the culture where it finds itself. Now, in contrast to that, we at the seminary believe that there is a government revealed in the Bible, Mm -hmm. and that's Presbyterianism. Now, we don't say that the churches are not Presbyterianly governed or not true churches. They are. We say that the government is for the – well-being of the church, not the being of the church. Uh, but that, that philosophy started then with him, that, yes, whatever the culture does, so now the culture has women in places of authority. Well, obviously, the church then can put women in places of authority, even though Paul quite specifically says in 1 Timothy 2 that he will not allow a woman to have authority over man or to teach
0: but they would say that that's a cultural issue. Right. And so the question, I think, that's, that naturally follows that, I think, if you're thinking even a little bit, is how do they determine that it's just a cultural issue?
1: Well, that's normally determined out of your desires mm-hmm. uh, and a desire to be um, relevant in the culture. You know, we we don't have these problems on the front page in, in our denomination bill, but we just this week on the Quill Report, there's a, a thing, uh, some of our ministers won't speak out against homosexuality because they want to reach the culture. And uh, thus, we're going to gloss over uh, significant sin areas in order to be relevant. Well, the next step is, if I want to be relevant, well, actually, in some of our churches are putting women, they're reading Scripture uh, in in the service, they're leading prayer, they ministry, ministering the sacraments. Now, if the Bible forbids those things, which I think it does, then if they desire to be relevant to the culture, they're already taking the first step. And I said a few years ago that our denomination would be wrestling with the issue of women's ordination in a matter of a few years. And we have, with respect to women deacons, I realize there are other denominations that accept female deacons that hold to the integrity of Scripture. But for me, it's a big problem. So this desire to be relevant, and so the issues that are the hot-button issues are the issues then, well, the culture's changed. We need to meet the culture in order, and, and people are sincere to win people to Christ. But the minute we do that, we've given away... The authority of Scripture.
0: Paul said he'd be all things to all people for the gospel. Though,
1: but is he clearly this, is that, this what we're talking? Is this what he meant by that? No, he that? clearly in that passage uh, shows he's talking about uh, non-essentials. He says uh, it's in First Corinthians nine. Mm-hmm. He says in verse 19, though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. So Paul, in that transition period when it was not improper, would observe Jewish customs, take Jewish vows and 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 things like that. Though he wouldn't circumcise uh, a Gentile convert, he didn't follow the Jewish food laws, but he would follow some of the, of the worship things only for the sake of the gospel. And then he says that... Um, Those who are without the law, he became as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. So Mm -hmm. again, he's talking about the non-essentials. Clearly making a distinction that he considered himself under the law of God, the law of Christ, the royal law, which is simply the Ten Commandments. In the same book there, he also uh, strongly...
0: That's probably not strong enough a word. Strongly exhorted the Corinthians to throw the wayward brother who was um, involved in illicit relationships out of out of the church. Right, so,
1: and this is the same book that he says that homosexuals not inherit kingdom of heaven. They're not, right, they're not saved. Hey,
0: you know, I always want to. Be, whenever we talk about this subject, I'm always. Um, well, you know me. I very opinionated, on, and yeah. especially at these. Types of matters, but I think one of the things that Christians tend to do on these subjects, and 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 frankly, I think they shoot themselves in the foot when they do it, is um, there's a lack of um, well, I mean, there's there's a lack of love. We we tend to pigeonhole the homosexual people as if they're a different class of sinner. Certainly the consequence of their lifestyle is more severe than a person who just, um, you know, lies from time to time to his dad. Okay, we, we get that. I mean, it's different sins have different consequences. Some have a far-reaching consequence. Some have very little, um, at least as we can see them. Um, how has the church failed in this subject? And how could, what could we do
1: better? I'm glad you brought this up. We had a a really good message uh, today in chapel on uh, Jesus' love for sinners and all sinners with whom he came in contact, and that we are to love sinners. Now, we don't make that distinction that God loves sinners and hates their sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not talking about God's saving love here. We're talking about Christ uh, as the God-man showing compassion and love and associating with unconverted people. And we have failed there. Mm. We need to have um, love and compassion for all sinners, and they need to be welcome uh, in our homes, on our, on our foundations, our, our standards, welcome to our churches. Um, we develop relationships. We're not throwing stones. Mm. Uh, when we use the law... It's not simply out of a self-righteous condemnation. It is to show them their terrible lost condition because we've got hope. And so, yes, I think that we do have to to be careful when we uh, talk about these things that we're not proud. You know, I recognize, I think, what I would have become. Because of the things I was doing mm. uh, in uh, early teens if God had not saved me. Mm-hmm. And it's very, what I already had done, even as a young teenager, is despicable. So we all have to realize, whether we've come up through the covenant or, like me, been converted out of, out of a different Lifestyle that it's God's grace that saves us. It's only God's grace that distinguishes. And so we, we need to have compassion. These people are a lot of bra- uh, bravado, uh, a lot of boasting, but anybody can do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: These people, you know, we know the conscience. It's, I, I often tell the students, when you press – the conscience. You're like the physician that's got the person on the examining table. Does it hurt here? And we know where the conscience will hurt. They won't admit it, but we know where to press for the hurt, and then we set Christ before them. And regardless of their bravado, their denials, that's what God will use. But we're not And it's difficult. We have to function on a couple of levels. As a member of the state, a citizen, I abhor any laws that legalize homosexuality. Mm -hmm. I think it should be against the law. I'm talking about what somebody does in the privacy of the bedroom. But in terms of any open practice of this, it should be against the law, as is murder or kidnapping or or bestiality or child abuse. Mm Mm-hmm. Um and so, on the one hand, I do want laws that will protect our society, but on the other hand, particularly if if in confidence somebody tells me that this is their struggle or their nature or, or whatever well i'm I'm not going to condemn them i I'm, I'm should have compassion on them and, and want to see them uh, come to the freedom of the gospel yeah,
0: and I think that's a very um a balanced look i mean we see What's going on around the world? Um, I mean, I realize this subject has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But, it, it, there's, it, but, it, but the point's still there. Um, overreaction to social issues without the framework of the Bible and the gospel always working will result in what we saw in Libya. Where people mm-hmm. bomb the consulate, and, and 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 you know whether that video was the issue or not. Who you know, I think we all know the answer to that by now. Um, but the point is, is that this is not the face of Christianity. Radical, reaction, is, uh, reactionary type of responses. Uh, the the response to, of Christianity should always be as what you just articulated, and that is that we give them Christ. I, I don't care how awful your sin is; it, it, it's not that. Right. It's that there is hope and repentance available. Um, and so I don't want people hearing this, convers- this broadcast that maybe aren't Christians and thinking, well, there's those two guys sitting around the room and they're just you know, using the Bible to beat us over the head again We've heard it a thousand times. Well, yeah, maybe you have. Um, but um, I, can, I can attest to the reality that if you came here even to this school to talk with us, um, we would talk with you and in, a, in an environment that would be friendly and, um, and, and welcoming, we hope, um, as well. Real quick, we're almost out of time. And, and I know we didn't get to talk about everything we want to talk about, which I'm not surprised by giving the, who the host of the program is. But um, be that as it may. Uh, cultural issues. Uh, one issue that comes up, my wife and I wrestled with this um, years and years ago. We've long put it to bed. But it occasionally sneaks up. And shows up in churches. What's the, uh, what's the biblical positions, you know, social issues and all that uh, in view on head coverings?
1: Well, I was getting ready to move you there from the Middle East anyway, so I'm glad you— It was a good segue. —you got there, Bill. <laughs> uh, yes, because in my conversations, often with Bible believers who want to say, well, that was for Paul's day, it's not binding in our day, they bring up this issue. Well, look at head coverings. Paul says in first Corinthians eleven that we are women are to have their heads covered in the church we don't do that today uh, some do um, but that because that was a cultural issue now there are three approaches to first Corinthians eleven the one is that people believe that we still should do it and we have need to respect them um, the other is that it was a cultural issue and is no longer binding and i I find that invalid, regardless of one's position and right, head coverings, there's no place in the New Testament where I uh, ever want to pitch my tent and saying, well that was cultural for Paul's day and not for our day. No, the third position is, and it might be a bit more complicated, but that uh, there are things in the Bible that are permanent but will express themselves Mm -hmm. differently through cultural expressions. Mm -hmm. And I think that Paul makes that clear here Uh, when he concludes his whole discussion and he says uh, of the woman in verse 15, if woman has long hair, it's her glory, her hair is given to her, and the English says for a covering, but the Greek is instead of a covering. So that the biblical issue is that a woman's uh, style of dress in worship needs to be feminine and an expression of submission to her husband. In Paul's day, uh, if a woman had her head shaved... Uh, that was the parallel he makes because that was a cultural statement. It was a rebellion. So my interpretation is if a woman's and, – and so the cultural part is what is fe- a feminine uh, hairstyle. That is going to vary from culture to culture and from age to age. So my position is that if a woman's hairstyle is feminine, her hair is instead of the covering. Hmm. But let's just say that we have a young lady that was converted and she had a buzz. And she's now a Christian in the church. Well, I would say that until her hair grows to a, a a feminine length in that culture where she is, she should have her head covered. So it's kind of an in-between position. But the principle is established here in terms of male-female relationships, of the presence of angels in worship, and the order of creation. And so the woman is to have an expression of authority over her, but he says it can be her hair. I think that's the part that's missing. My wife and I wrestled with it as well, and it's that preposition instead of that um, uh, causes us to say that as long as she is dressed in a feminine way and her hair is feminine, that that's an expression of um, her place in God's order of things.
0: It's interesting what you said about the um pitching your tent on cultural conclusions. In other words, this issue, for instance, um, and where you would, would avoid that. Um, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say it that way before, frankly, um, because it raises some interesting questions. Um, if we're always quick to say, well, that was for Paul's day and that was the cultural issue. I mean, where do you draw the line? I mean, you have no... Everything becomes very subjective. Well, in my culture, we do this, and in um, that culture, will they do that. Therefore, like in some cultures, women are the dominant force. They're the authoritative, in an authoritative position, where we would say, no, the Bible in that culture, as the Bible is, uh, is interjected into that culture where people are regenerated, come to Christ, that they need to conform to the right. biblical understanding of that. Um, Same
1: some cultures have polygamy and when the bible comes then people need to move to move to monogamy sure yeah not they don't put away their that's why paul says that an elders be the husband of one wife he's talking about in pagan cultures he didn't say put away your wives but they couldn't be a leader of the church and and have have those wives
0: mm. uh,
1: there is um one other thing to to clarify this issue because surely somebody might be thinking right now about well now what about um, tongue speaking or things like that, Um, there are also issues that are theological that uh, have uh, been done away with because they've been replaced by something superior. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, 13, and 14, Paul really lays the foundation for the superiority of the written revelation. And so now there's no longer a need— because we have a completed Bible, when they didn't have a completed Bible. Well, first tongues was a sign of cursing on the Jews,
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: was a revel- revelation from God. It was proof of apostleship and of apostolic gifts. With the completed Bible, now we have all those things. But we don't say they're done away with culturally. We say that uh, they have come to their fullness in now a completed Scripture. So. Yes, we can be accused, well, there's some things you say no longer are valid. Well, that's true, but it's on the basis of the Scripture's testimony to them, theologically, not culturally.
0: Yeah, that's same, you could use the same example of the, of the temple. Right. I mean, we don't worship in a temple anymore. I mean, they right. did it. The people of old, God's people of old did you it one time. Pork. Yeah. <laughs> and now, uh, because of the f- unfolding of revelation, right. uh, we see that these things have been changed. Um, but we have divine revelation to tell us such. Right. We don't determine it. Right. And, and I think that's really the fundamental difference in whatever these issues that people want to say are cultural. For instance, going back to the homosexual issue. Well, you want to say that's a cultural issue in Paul's day. Well, but we have nothing further in the testimony of Scripture that would seem to unseat that in any way. It's the same message every time, clearly.
1: I it's mean, the really. Same women's ordination. And I just really appeal to our hearers, our brothers yeah. out there, to. Look honestly at this issue and uh, reconsider the position of saying, "Well, that was for Paul's day. Yeah. it's a dangerous place to be
0: absolutely, and I, you know if it, well <clears throat> yeah, I, I I don't think it be could be said any clearer, and it's certainly a really a subjective position, a subjective hermeneutic. I mean, at the end of the day, you be you become the determiner of what the cultural issue is, right, and you don't have the revelation of God to tell you that. So I'm here in the 21st century, and, well, the world doesn't do it that way, so culturally, we can do it that way. What? I've never known the Bible to do it the world's way, so <laughs> why would we start here? It's it's somewhat confusing. Dr. Pipe, I know we're out of time. You've got a class to teach in a few minutes, um, but I appreciate this conversation. I don't know that we've talked about everything we wanted to talk about, but um, that, that's fine. Uh, you're always— welcome on the program. You're going to, in fact, um, for those who listen to this quite regularly, we had a meeting recently, and um, we've, we're working towards streamlining this podcast so that each week you'll we'll have different topics as, uh, as subject matters, like one week could be news in the church, things that are going on, one week could be do- completely doctrinal, um, one week could be, I forgot all the topics. Forgive me. I didn't take notes. But uh, anyway, that's, that's my assistant's job. He, he does that for me, and he'll laugh when he hears this, hopefully. But anyway, we do thank you for being on um, the program and um, for your insight into this subject. It's, um, I, it's a subject we're we'll going to be talking about, I think, for many years to come, unfortunately.
1: Okay. Another and, important uh, subject we're going to deal with, and, and Lord William we're going to have a, a special speaker is the one on intinction, which is right. a very serious issue. going to be before all of our presbyteries this uh, late fall. Now, you've seen injured. some of those votes already on that. Have you? Oh, no, I haven't.
0: Oh, they've been very good. Oh, good. To the ones I've seen so it's because far. because the
1: ruling elders. Yes. You see, we need to talk about the whole structure of the General Assembly. The ruling elders, there are only a little over 200 ruling mm-hmm. elders of this General Assembly. That's right. And the ruling elders now have a chance to express some good biblical common sense. And that's uh, why. But anyway, we need to deal with that issue. I think we've got a special speaker to do that. Have you talked to him yet? I haven't. Okay. And then... Um, Yeah, we're going to look at uh, Pato Communion, as well as uh, we're going to have a speaker to come in and talk about, in the spring, the issues that will be before the General Assembly and the PCA and the OPC. Yep.
0: And then, as I mentioned earlier, um, as we conclude today, um, we will be having uh, a number of guests on that will be speaking at our Spring Theology Conference. Do you want to give them the topic?
1: Yes. We're going to be dealing with the doctrine of man, which has been in the news lately. Uh, Again, a number of... of, uh, Reformed people uh, uh, advocating uh, some forms of theistic evolution, uh, saying, "Well, I might believe in a historic Adam, but Adam could have been created from an ape or from some class of people, but just been one among many." Hmm. And so we um, we're going to deal uh, uh, in, in critiquing these positions, uh, particularly the creation of Adam and the uh, death before the fall, but then. Do positive development, which is what we always try to do in our conferences. So we're going to uh, look at the um, creation of man, uh, the covenant of works, another big issue in, in the Church today, uh, temptation and the fall, uh, original sin, man in the image of God. Those are some of the things we'll be dealing with. I'm very excited about the conference. And like I said, we'll be having some of those
0: lectures on the podcast, uh, sort of a lead-up to the conference itself. Um, So stay tuned for more information about that. Um, And you can get that information at the ConfessingOurHope.com website. In addition, we do have a mobile app that you can use. And I have begun to add um, Dr. Piper's Chapel Sermons uh, series he started uh, this fall on the names of God, it's been very good, outstanding sermons. And I'm not saying that just because he's sitting in front of me and he's the president of the school. They are outstanding sermons, uh, wonderful insight into the names of God as God gave them to us. Um, and so those are available also on the mobile app as well. So take advantage of that. Uh, as usual, visit us at our website, gpts.edu. You'll find all the information you need about the seminary at that website. And you can always write me at Confessing our Hope. Uh, at gpts.edu, and I try to respond as fast as I can in my busy schedule. So, until next time, I do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and God bless.